Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based practice in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you, calculate for over 400 easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. I'm joined today by doctors Barry Casson, Steph Voye, and Thomas Rostin. Hello, everyone. Hey, Danny. Got the original crew back in the house. That's right. We're all here. It's nice to see everyone. Happy to see you, Danny. So I'm going to be presenting an interesting case that I saw actually quite recently. This is of Ms. C. So she's a woman in her mid-60s, and she's presenting for assessment of Raynaud's. Her past medical history includes osteoporosis as well as hepatitis B. She tells me that she was previously treated. Her recent, very recent serology shows that she has hepatitis B core antibody positive, antigen negative, and surface antibody negative. Her current medications include alendronate. She has a family history significant for possible rheumatoid arthritis on the maternal side. And in terms of her social history, she's a very active woman. She has two children married. She's a retired business owner. She travels regularly to India and was last there in 2017, and she is of Indian descent. So she was well until May of 2019. And at that time, she began to develop an ascending, non-painful, non-pruritic, purpuric rash over the legs. It was unresponsive to topical steroids or antibiotics, and a skin biopsy was performed and was nonspecific. The rash continues to wax and wane on its own, regardless of the the treatments that they try. And about a month after initial onset, the rash actually spreads to the arms and lower trunk. She begins to lose weight, so about 10 pounds over the coming months. And she notes new onset of oral sicca, some arthralgias of the small joints, and new bilateral raynaud's. So just stopping there, I want to go through differential and workup and get a sense of where everyone's heads are at. Okay, I'm happy to jump in. I'm so eager. I guess my preliminary thoughts are, you know, I think many of these cases start off with, we think there's something inflammatory going on, and we talk about a differential diagnosis of infectious versus autoimmune or other inflammatory. And I think that's the situation that we're in right now. I don't have a whole lot to go on to suspect that this is infectious, and it sounds more like autoimmune inflammatory. The rash... Sounds like it began as a skin-limited vasculitis of some kind, um, although I'm, I don't know the specifics of the biopsy result. And now she's having a more sort of complete inflammatory profile with sicca, arthritis, and Raynaud's phenomenon. So it sounds like, you know, we're in the territory of vasculitis, connective tissue disease. The other things that I'm interested in in her story are the fact that she's had hepatitis B, and presumably that's done with. And we don't have to think about it. Her serology suggests that it's cleared. So probably this is not a, a complication of her hepatitis B, is what I'm thinking. And then her family history of rheumatoid arthritis. I want to know more about that. But it sounds like we're kind of getting into, we're going to be talking about vasculitis and connective tissue disease. Not again. Uh, so <laughs> but is that for you guys. Is that, am I, that's, I'm being so general. No, no, I think it's good. Thomas? What, what so so the, the reason for referral was Raynaud's. Yeah, Raynaud's in the context of all of these evolving symptoms, but the uh, new spookiest uh, manifestation at the time of referral was that the Raynaud's was starting to 
was was new and was starting to get bad. And and um, do we know a little bit more? Like, is it uh, she has no previous history of any nodes? Is there anything that's triggering it that's obvious? Like, what's on your mind? Nothing. That's why I'm asking. Some questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Great. So uh, we're we're going to get I don't, into I, everything. I think everything that Steph has said is kind of would would be roughly what I was thinking. Is just think it's interesting. Often, what the reason for consultation is. You kind of have to answer the question they're asking, but also answer the question they don't know they're asking, which is there's a lot of other stuff going on that is much more, seems much more worrisome than the Raynaud's, which is something we often think of as being fairly benign. Always. Absolutely. And I, I, I would just add that the interesting things I think for me at this point is I like the fact that, she, that you've said she's gone to India and, and to think about uh, some acquired uh, diseases that she may have come in contact with in, in India. But the other thing is this, you described her rash as purpuric, but her biopsy is nonspecific. And that, I, I actually thought you were going to say leukocytoclastic vasculitis because that was what I was expecting. So I'm pretty interested in the fact in the rash and now it's spreading. So I'd raise the possibility that we're looking at not just inflammatory, but certainly entertaining infectious or neoplastic and then coming into why, you know, why she's developed her symptoms the way she has, and especially the renal. So, yeah, I, I think it sounds like a challenge. I think what's interesting is we would be probably thinking about a totally different differential diagnosis if this was a 19-year-old person from the street with previous hepatitis B exposure coming in yeah. with a diffuse rash. We'd be going way down the infectious HIV hep C route. Right. And it's interesting how those demographics kind of define things. But I'd want to know more about, like, how did you get hep B? Do we know? How long has she had it been a carrier for? Has she been tested for other bloodborne illnesses that might be associated? Because I think all of those factors would be really important to rule out as quick, easy rule outs from the outset. Absolutely. I think those are all really relevant thoughts. How she acquired the hepatitis B, I can't recall right now. Um, I think it might have been transfer from partner. And it was a number of years ago, like 15, 20 years ago. Uh, no concerning exposures like IV drug use. Or... Okay, so one, one question I want to harp on just a little bit is, so you get a referral for Raynaud's. Yeah. Uh, how do you diagnose someone with Raynaud's? So maybe we'll start with uh, Barry on this one. What, sure. what do you actually is Raynaud's? Because everyone has we... cold hands. Yeah. Well, a color change. I think that it's said that you don't need all three color changes. Uh, so, I mean, it's usually pretty obvious to the person that has it, if they describe it to you, that cold induces their color change and and it's relieved when they're, they warm up. So that's how I would diagnose it. I mean, it would be very helpful to see not just cyanosis or just, you know, to see a classic renos, but that's what I would do. And, yeah. and just along that line, in considering the possibility of Raynaud's, independent of the people that, that the way she's presenting, I have a kind of algorithm in my mind that I go through when I see someone with Raynaud's, and I'm assuming she doesn't jackhammer. <laughs> That's a great question. Okay. No, not no, uh, not just, doing a lot of uh, heavy manual labor. Or, okay. Uh, no, no obvious vibration injuries. Okay. So one thing that I think is interesting, though, is like the patient report of color changes in the hands. I would say another population that often reports that, and I can never quite corroborate, is often patients who have um, fibromyalgia um, oh. or something on the spectrum. Often, and, and yes. Steph, you have uh, your own expertise in this. I, I do find that often there is a report of color changes in the hands, and that that perhaps is too subtle for me to appreciate. But I even believe that the, the diagnostic criteria might even be in the somatic symptoms 
color changes in the hands. It might even say ray notes. So you're right. So the definition, there are a couple of different definitions, but the one that I specifically like is um, by Dr. Wiggly, who is uh, a world expert and has done a of lot of, a lot of great trials. So you at, here are the screening questions. Are your fingers unusually sensitive to cold? Do your fingers change color when exposed to cold temperatures? And do they turn white, blue, or both? And that does reflect some of the literature that says that the red discoloration doesn't really matter. You don't need three colors, just like you said. And really where the debate is, is is one color okay? Or do you need two? And by and large, one color is fine. So if you answer yes to all three of those questions, you have rain notes. But there's no gold standard. So it really just comes down to what someone's opinion is of rain notes. Uh, yeah, I'd say like like many things in rheumatology, the gold standard is what someone <laughs> thinks, which is totally unhelpful. So good point. So um, differential diagnosis for Raynaud's uh, may be an interesting place to start. And, and Thomas, you had asked uh, about some of the potential precipitants. So things that we might see, amphetamines, cough or cold medication, nicotine, beta blockers, uh, certain types of chemotherapy like bleomycin, cocaine, uh, cyclosporin, ergots and uh, interferon. Uh, you can, of course, have primary ray notes, but the secondary causes would include all the different rheumatic diseases, uh, lots of hematologic disorders, endocrine disorders like hypothyroidism. If you have vascular um, compromise or disorders, that's always on your list. Environmental things like frostbite and vibration exposure are important too. I'm, okay, I'm so. fascinated by the number of medications that are associated. I didn't realize all of those medications were associated with Raynaud's. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll, I'll give you some of the initial workup, and then I will ask you what else you want. So I'm going to give you a workup I am assuming you, you would send. So this person has a normocytic anemia at 99, but otherwise normal CBC, a creatinine of 155 with an EGFR of 30 with a normal baseline um, a couple of months before. Liver enzymes are normal. TSH is normal. An ANA is negative, and antiphospholipid antibodies are also negative. An ANCO was done, which was negative. A CCP, anti-CCP, or ACPA, was negative. An SPEP showed mild hypoalbuminemia. A C3 was done, which was low, and a C4, which was undetectable. A rheumatoid factor was elevated at just under 800, and a skin biopsy was performed again, which shows LCV leukocytoclastic vasculitis, which is what uh, you were looking for. Uh, so tell me your thoughts, and then I'll, I'll kind of focus our discussion on some items here. So this actually, your description, at least the one you've given to us, is the description we used to use for immune complex disease before we could measure immune complexes. That's a strongly positive rheumatoid factor, a normocytic anemia, a leukocytoclastic vasculitis, and what whatever constituted the immune complex, whether it was cryos or whatever, it was part of what we were looking for. So that's this is old school. That's right. Any other any other thoughts around the room? And they would just give the patient leeches. Yeah. Um they hadn't evolved to be leeches yet. Um, yeah, I think I agree with that. Like it feels like we're yeah, we're in the connective tissue disease realm. Now I'm more confident than I was 10 minutes ago. I mean, it's not straight rheumatoid arthritis in the sense that I think the anemia can be explained with rheumatoid arthritis, the hypocomplementemia, the hypoalbuminemia, the renal dysfunction. I need some um, better understanding of because right now I don't quite get that. 
And then for me, sicka symptoms aren't sort of typical. They're not in my illness script for pure rate, uh, pure rheumatoid arthritis. So a couple of issues, outstanding issues left to resolve. So whether we're talking about rheumatoid arthritis and I'm about to learn some new things about rheumatoid arthritis, or we're talking about like more an overlap syndrome. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Danny, but, um, what, what would you say is a reasonably good short differential diagnosis for that high in RF? Because I don't really, I know it's high and I know it's not good, but I know that there is a differential and we're kind of all now leaning down the road of this is probably something related to rheumatoid, either rheumatoid overlap. But what are the other things that just like jump out to you that we can't miss with a rheumatoid factor like that? Sure. So a rheumatoid factor is just for some background, it's an antibody that can be IgG, MA, doesn't matter, directed against the FC portion of an IgG. So that is what, what are the RF is. It's commonly positive in young, healthy people. But it's, it becomes more positive as you get older. So about 5% in young people, 25% in a more uh, aged population. And then the things that you really commonly see it in would be rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's, other connective tissue disease, uh, hematologic diseases like cryo. You can see it in sarcoid. But then the things that we often would see in hospital here would be hepatitis B, C, TB, uh, endocarditis or sepsis. Uh, and you can get it with some unusual things like uh, B-cell neoplasm um, producing uh, an RF antibody and uh, PBC syphilis. So it, it's a really extensive list, which underlies the problem when you're diagnosing rheumatoid arthritis, because I also just read off a list of things that cause arthritis and arthralgias. So uh, that means that you the, the diagnostic utility of the rheumatoid factor, let's put it somewhere around 70, 75% sensitive, 70, 75% specific for rheumatoid arthritis. Not a great test, but kind of part of that workup. So I think based on that list, which was great, I would, there's a few things in that list that are the great mimickers in medicine. And I would still totally agree with the diagnostic path we've gone down, but, you know, there are some things that point to maybe those being factors. There are a few things on the history that I would think would make me want to at least easily check for a lot of those infectious things. So, yeah, no, no, I think that that's really uh, important. And she, she's how old? 57? No, Six, si- uh, late 60s. Late 60s. Mid to late 60s. Okay. I, I would check for TB and all the infectious, sexually transmitted infections like yeah. syphilis you mentioned, just because those things are things that are easy to miss, but also easy to check. Okay. Um, a little bit of background information, because uh, one of the prominent features, so we talked about the high rheumatoid factor, one of the other important unusual things here was the undetectable C4 and the low C3. Those may be a window into the case. So hypocomplementemia, just a little bit of background here. It's a component of the innate immune system. Activation of the complement system will lead to opsonization and elimination of various targets and can be part of the inflammatory cascade with chemotaxis and bacterial destruction. And there's the classical pathway, which is antigen-antibody complex, and that usually depletes C4 more than C3. And then there's the alternative pathway that's really more for pathogens and apoptotic products. And that more depletes C3 than C4. There's this other pathway, the lectin pathway, that we're not going to care about. But uh, the pattern of what is the most low between the C4 and the C3 may point you towards which pathway and then which pathway may match up with what your clinical impression was. So our C4 was lower than our C3, 
that at least points towards the classical pathway, which is antigen-antibody complex, so immune complex disease, as uh, Barry had said before. Uh, but interestingly, there is a huge list of things that can either subtly or significantly lower your complements. And that list, I'm just going to read off a couple important ones here. So HSP or IgA vasculitis, cholesterol emboli, rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis with vasculitis, uh, cryo lupus with uh, glomerulonephritis. That's an important part of following those patients. Post-strep GN, IgA nephropathy, ankyovasculitis, even IgG4 is on that list. So again, like the, like the rheumatoid factor, you will still have to make a clinical decision about the relevance of the finding. Yeah, you know, I, I have to admit that, and I'd be interested in, in others, but I don't use the compliments that much as a window into the cases. And, and it's, I, I recognize the pathways you've mentioned, but I'm interested to hear if you use the compliments. Is that a discriminating feature for you when you're looking at patients that have non-specific uh, non diseases? So I'd say that here I think it is of particular relevance. So subtle changes in the compliments. I think are so nonspecific that it's yeah. not really going to get me anywhere, but really profound changes. So like undetectably low C3 or C4, that is, I think, helpful. That starts to approach a bit more specificity when it's okay. really abnormal, kind of in the same way that for you guys, the rheumatoid factor being like insanely high, yeah. that starts to approach something more, perhaps a little bit more specific than like weak positive. Okay. You at least are saying, well, it's not just like, that 5% of young people, 25% of older people. It's probably pathologic in this case. Or, so mm -hmm. I, I think I'd more use it that way. So uh, what other investigations do you guys want at this point? So I've given you a pretty good starting point, I think, but I'm sure there's a lot more stuff that you guys are interested in. Do Have we seen any urine? Uh, so urine, it, you, I, I didn't mention it, so no, but the urine was actually completely blind, despite the rise in creatinine. And it, the creatinine is checked again, and it's somewhere in the, the 200s. And the, the skin biopsy was stained for IgA? Not stained for IgA. Good question. So when you do a skin biopsy, if you do want IgA staining, you either have to do two biopsies or take one biopsy, cut it in half, and it has separate medium for immunofluorescence for IgA. And it is pretty much exclusively to answer that question, at least from a vasculitis perspective. You, you require that to tell IgA. Without the immunofluorescence staining, you cannot say. I guess that I, I'm thinking about more of infection neoplasm than I am about autoimmune diseases. I mean, her systemic features of weight loss and her other, I mean, it just, to me, it doesn't quite add up to, uh, you know, shown line. It doesn't, it doesn't compute that way. And I don't think she's got rheumatoid that's, that's causing the problem. When I'm confused, I've never regretted ordering a CT chest abdopelvis. <laughs> you know, like, I don't mean, like, I, I think we should rely on our clinical skill and acumen but i have never regretted that and often you just find stuff that you're like wow i was not going down that path and it saves you sometimes and i think we're all a bit confused and the next thing i would do is order a tb skin test well probably not a tb skin test but i would check her for tb and i would order a ct chest abdopelvis yeah i don't know i'm, I'm unhappy like her ana was negative and ena panel is negative this does not mean that she doesn't have for example sjogren's you know you're talking about mimics earlier Sjogren's is also a really good mimic. Like, there's so many sort of extra glandular manifestations of Sjogren's that that's one that was kind of on my radar earlier. HSP, I agree. I don't think it's that 
likely. I still don't, you know, I'm still, I haven't, I don't think we've ruled out a rheumatoid or an overlap syndrome. I still think in my mind, that's the most likely thing. But can I just ask, so you're thinking about what precisely is a diagnosis. I guess what I'm wondering is, do we immunosuppressor or do we give her antimicrobials oh, or I, chemotherapy? I That's kind of like, I, I guess I kind of, ex- maybe it's, it's probably because I'm naive, but like whether it's some overlap with Sjogren's and rheumatoid or some other vasculitis in the initial treatment phase, how much does that actually matter? I don't think, I don't think we need to treat this lady yet. Like there's nothing here. She's, she's now patient. There's not, I would not pull the trigger on antimicrobials or immunosuppression just yet. Like I'm miles away from certainty and confidence around this diagnosis. I'm not even, hasn't even crossed my mind to treat her with anything yet. But I think I, I like the, uh, you know, we, we do a surveillance by history and we do a surveillance by physical. And I actually like Thomas's approach by surveillance by CT. Now, that hasn't been supported. Surveillance by shotgun? Well, it's not really shot. It hasn't been supported. I recognize in, in some of the, uh, certainly an article in the New England Journal su- su- suggested that that was an inappropriate test for screening for carcinoma. But in a patient who's got multiple systems involved, we're, we're still looking to see other systems that might be involved and other things that could be related. And I think it's just information gathering. So I have I really like that that approach, and I've learned that from Jake Onrod. If you're going to order a CT of some part of your body, order a CT of the whole part of the body. And I actually don't disagree. I think it gives us some information. But we have our we have some concepts of what we think we're looking for. It's not just imaging for imaging sake. So you brought, you're bringing Jake Onrod into this. So I, I have a, a question to, to pose to the room, and this is more philosophy of diagnosis than anything. So Dr. Onrod likes to talk about the Bayesian approach to diagnosis, where you begin with a pretest probability, which is itself based on your clinical experience and the literature available. And then you do a test for which the diagnostic um, utility is known. And the math of that gets you closer and closer to a diagnosis. Correct. Can anyone tell me how that approach works in rare diseases where your pretest probability is necessarily going to be low, even in a convincing case? So, so just because some, it's more likely that someone has five coincidences than that it's a really rare disease. And then the tests that you do for it are also necessarily either going to have likely going to have low sensitivity, low specificity. So how can you use a Bayesian approach when you're trying to diagnose a very rare uh, condition? Or can you not? So I, I don't think you can. So in, in, in those situations, the Bayesian approach works, I think, when you have common diseases that are prevalent. They don't work. So I think there's two, I use it two ways. I say that uncommon diseases are ones you have to think about because you'll ne- they won't arise in any other fashion. And they're, they're independent of this statistical approach because if you don't know about them, how could you even have a pretest probability for them? So that's, that's what I would say. And actually, I was telling somebody the other day that Dr. Onrod's approach is he looks at the common things first and would apply this, uh, this approach. And the way he and I differ is I look at the uncommon things first and don't apply this approach. That's right. I would say that I think you can use a Bayesian, you can use Bayesian reasoning for rare disease if a hallmark of a rare disease is present. So there are some pathognomonic features of rare diseases that just make you think the moment you hear that, you should say that 
even if the pretest probably is only 10%, that's good enough to go and do the workup because so few people are going to have a, te- you know, a pretest probability of 10% for that condition. And I think if it's a rare disease that presents, you know, indiscriminately with not a lot of obvious features, then it's hard to apply that. But if you've got something that's like, there's only three things in the world that cause this abnormality, then, then I think you yeah. can apply Bayesian reasoning. Yeah, I agree with all that. I mean, I think Bayes can be helpful in ruling out rare diseases, just not as useful in ruling them in. Great. Awesome. So I, I'm going to just give you some of the second tier investigations that come back. So some of them you may have asked for and some maybe not. So an anti-GBM is done in the context of the uh, progressive renal dysfunction, negative, ASOT, negative. Given subtle abnormalities on the SPEP, a UPEP's done that shows possible monoclonal band in the gamma region. Immunofixation shows a very small monoclonal free kappa light chain band. Uh, Serum-free light chains show kappa and lambda are both somewhat elevated with a ratio of 4. But again, it's a very small uh, band. Peripheral flow is done and is normal, so no features of a lymphoproliferative disorder. Uh, The patient does get an IGRA, which is negative. Blood cultures were normal. The SPEP, UPEP were followed up with a bone marrow biopsy. That comes back normal. Hepatitis status is rechecked, so is the, the patient is still hepatitis B core antibody positive, surface antigen and antibody negative, and a cryoglobulin is sent and comes back positive. So we did a bone marrow before ordering a CT chest abdo pelvis. Oh, so that's done pretty much simultaneously. The patient is admitted to hospital at this point. CT chest abdo pelvis showed a lymph node in the right axilla that was just upper limit of normal, nothing else, and that didn't have any spooky features to it. Yeah, so this was certainly a consideration uh, at the outset that cryoglobulinemia was, what's the cryocrit? So cryocrit, uh, I've actually just tried to order that here, and I I can't seem to get it. Why do you care? Well, because everyone has cryos at some point or other, so it really depends on how much cryo you have. And so you can get it, you know, the percentage... The stronger, the more the cryocrit, the higher the cryocrit, the stronger the cryoglobulinemia, that's the stronger the fact that that may be a pathologic entity. So do you think that you can use the rheumatoid factor as a surrogate? Yeah. So now that you know there's cryos, you can look back and say uh, that the height of that rheumatoid factor was definitely at least in part bolstered by cryoglobulins. Does as that I make say, sense it, to you? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it only makes sense because that's what we used to do. It may have been incorrect. But that was, we didn't have the sophistication to do other things. So rheumatoid factor was immune complex was cryoglobulins. Awesome. So what do you guys think is actually going on? So, so you, okay, you have found cryos, rheumatoid factor positive, low complements. The kidney function is deteriorating. What do you think is happening in the kidneys? Immune complex disease. I think so too. Okay, so we're going for a biopsy then? Uh, well, or, or are you happy? Like, like that's the, so. Well, we there's no have blood a, and there's no protein. So we already have a biopsy. We have a skin biopsy. Yes. So it shows vasculitis. Yes. We have cryos. So what do we ex- what What would we expect? What are we going to learn from a, a renal biopsy? What do we expect to to show that there's cryoglobulinemia, a cryoglobulin stain in the in the vessels? Yeah. Will that help us? Is that I mean is that I guess what I'm saying, thinking is we know that she has cryoglobulinemia. So let's say she has ATN or something. Would, would that influence what we did? I don't think so. I think we would still treat her. Is it, uh, is it just for my understanding, because I, I may be missing something, but if we treat her and we decide that we want to get the answer to what's going on with her kidneys in a month because things are going the wrong direction, 
is there a chance that our treatment is going to confound what was the original problem? Because I think that's the only justification to say we do a renal biopsy now, as opposed to just treating her and waiting to see what happens. Does it? So you guys have seen collectively a lot of glomerulonephritis or immune complex uh, induced glomerulonephritis. This patient has no blood or protein. Does that concern you that perhaps the diagnosis is not wrapped up? Yeah. Is that a good enough reason to biopsy here? So, okay. So she has, so if she doesn't have glomerulonephritis, then what does she have? I mean, what? I don't know. What, I know. <laughs> you know, but the way you said, I don't know. I know you know. But how would the cryoglobulins, what else would they affect? I mean, the tubules? Would she have deposition of proteinaceous material in the tubules? She got ATN. I mean, I can't think of, I can't think of an association with, I mean, Sjogren's might affect the tubules, but I can't think of cryos is affecting the, the tubules. Or more like AIN? Maybe, maybe. Okay. And and I, I don't think we necessarily also have the best sense as why she has cryoglobulin anemia now. Are right. you saying that it's maybe all from rheumatoid or is there some other... I know this the CT chest abdopelvis that I advocated for was useless. But <laughs> not useless. It wasn't not useless. I like it. But, Very helpful. But is it possible yeah. we're still missing some other lymphoproliferative issue, some other hematological issue? It seems pretty unlikely. We've done all the tests that I could think of, but... You know, I still don't know if I feel comfortable with the fact that we know the cause of the cryoglobulin. So, so the other thing that in cryos, at times you can actually look to see what constitutes the cryo. So what makes up the cryo? So is it IgG, IgM? Might, so that may be helpful to break down the cryos. It might shed some light into some of the etiologies. And we're all in agreement that it sounds like she has MGUS? She has. Yeah. That there's no other reason to think that we have some other T-cell disorder that caused this... I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, it's a small peak um, with normal flow, not a lot of adenopathy, normal biopsy. Are we happy? The, the ratio is okay. Are we happy that her hepatitis C is still negative? Hep B. Their Hep B was positive. But what yeah, about hepatitis? Core positive. Yeah, core positive. What about Hep C? Hep C was negative. Negative. And yeah. RNA negative. Yeah, RNA negative. Yeah. Okay, fine. We'll okay. do the renal biopsy. Uh, I, <laughs> I'll do, you know what? I'll do it. I'll you do you go ahead biopsy. and do the renal biopsy. So renal biopsy is performed, and it shows acute interstitial nephritis, no evidence of cryo-related glomerulonephritis. That was an well, explosion. Steph, great. Yeah, no, called it. Yeah, but we're not any closer. No, we're not, but you called it. But can AIN not be caused by cryoglobulinemia? What a great question. We're going to get there in a little bit. So I'm just going to give a quick summary. So this is a lady in her 60s with hep B core positivity, presenting with leukocytoplastic vasculitis, kidney injury, constitutional symptoms, arthralgias, Raynaud's, SICA, found to have a very high rheumatoid factor, cryoglobulin positive, hypocomplementemic. Renal biopsy shows the acute interstitial nephritis rather than the typical GN. And in the background, there's a subtle abnormality on the SPEP, UPEP with a normal bone marrow biopsy. So you guys have raised the question, which is just because you found that she has cryos, that doesn't mean that that's one. It does not mean that the cryos are active, which we will talk about. But, but two, cryo is, is, it's like the symptom, right? It's like, why do you have heart failure? Cryo is why do you have cryos and you have to hunt until you have excluded everything before you can say idiopathic or essential or primary. So just a little bit of cryo background. So cryoglobulins are immunoglobulins that precipitate in vitro at temperatures below 37 degrees, and they produce organ damage through primarily two mechanisms. So there's vascular sludging or hyperviscosity that you usually see with the type 1 cryo, which is 
a monoclonal antibody, and the other way is through immune complex, and that causes vasculitis, blood, blood vessel inflammation, and that's much more common with type 2 and type 3. The presence of cryos does not mean you have cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, so in hep C, about up to 50% of patients in various cohorts will have circulating cryos, but only 2 to 50% of those patients will actually develop any symptoms. So the most common symptoms of cryo will be purpura, arthralgias, weakness, and they're classified by Bruet's classification system. And I'll show you guys a, a nice little picture here, but type 1 is monoclonal immunoglobulins. Type 2 is a monoclonal IgM with a polyclonal IgG, and type 3, they're both polyclonal, so polyclonal IgM and a polyclonal IgG. And the type 2 and the type 3 are where you get that strong rheumatoid factor activity although old cohorts show that even monoclonal can have rheumatoid activity somehow. So etiologies then is, is really what we're getting at, and the most common cause of cryoglobulinemia uh, was hepatitis C. Hepatitis B can also cause it, but it's much less uh, likely. And HIV, autoimmune disorders, so primary Sjogren's, uh, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and then hematologic disorders like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, CLL, multiple myeloma, and Hodgkin's. And then after you have ruled out all the nasty stuff, also there's there's tons of associations. So even like large vessel vasculitis, like GCA, TAC, everything has associations with cryo. But once you've ruled out all the reasonable stuff, you say it's essential cryoglobulinemia. And there's there are some different ways of breaking it down um, by hepatitis C, positive or negative. There's subtle differences there and subtle differences if you're just type 1 positive versus type 2 or 3, which is all called mixed. So... That's a little bit of background. What do you so? What do you guys want to do at this point? Are you are you happy that you've ruled out nas the nasty stuff and time to move on to treatment? Oh, oh to answer Thomas's question is whether or not acute interstitial nephritis can be caused by cryo. Yes, it is far less likely than glomerulonephritis. About seventy percent of the renal involvement will be uh, GN, and then the rest is like a smattering of other unusual uh, findings. Can so, I? Can I ask just, did we not look at her white blood cells in her urine? Shouldn't have they been elevated? Why do you say that? Because she has AIN. Good question. Uh, it looks like it was normal or no obvious elevation. So, I mean, if we want to make a pathophysiologic correlation, what about staining the, the biopsy for cryos? In the skin? Yeah. So it's usually large. I mean, it's, you usually see it. So it's immune complex, but... I'm assuming, I've never seen it then, but I'm assuming you could stain and see if cryo is present. Do you know that you can so? You can definitely stain for complement. Uh, I don't know that you can actually, I don't know that you can stain for like cryos per se, but, yeah. but you should be able to identify features of like immune complex deposition. Yeah, okay. Uh, maybe you may find like surrogate markers for that. But yeah, so on, on kidney biopsies, you should be able to see like complement deposition. Uh, and that wasn't seen here. That that's what was so unusual was it was AIN um, instead of the the usual. So you don't it, it is not through the same mechanism as the uh, GN. So I, I guess at this point, with our patient having all of these tests that are positive that we've mentioned and her kidney function deteriorating, we've got to decide what the antigen is if if we if if we can decide. Because it does come down as somebody's to whether are you going to treat her for infection or immunosuppressor or treat her for both or do nothing. And do guess, nothing sounds like a bad idea. At this point, I would agree. Um, I'm sorry. Is there an infection? You guys keep bringing up infection. Is there an infection that we've identified so far? We have, we have I, not. I 
I would say, like, I'm not worried about an infection right now. I mean, is this a crazy hypothesis that this lady has rheumatoid arthritis or, or some other, you know, something like rheumatoid arthritis with secondary active cryoglobulinemia from that? And that this is her problem? That causing the like rash the and the kidney injury? That seems the most logical. So to, it may be the most logical, but it's the one that makes me least comfortable. Oh, gosh. <laughs> no, well, I know. But we have to do something. And, and so, it feels like, like, how could you prove that that, how could we prove that that's it? Well, we have cryoglobulins in the blood. We've biopsied the skin. Uh, it doesn't show cryoglobulins. Have, we haven't identified cryoglobulins, like, in the obviously affected parts of her body, like the kidneys or the skin. So that's a bit upsetting. It'd be nice to know if that's even possible to do. That would make me slam dunk 100% sure. I don't know if we can get there, and we need to do something. I just, I have a feeling we're going to mean to suppress this lady. I thought you were really far away from treatment, like really far away. Well, she she wasn't in the middle of having a worsening kidney injury. That's a new piece of information since I made that comment. Thank you. Um, And now we need to do something. Like, I, I think... We don't need to treat someone when they're, like, walking around as an outpatient. But to do nothing now that she's clearly deteriorating, that's the situation where I'm going to pull the trigger on some kind of treatment without having the amount of certainty that I would need if she was otherwise a well outpatient. And to answer the question about infection, it's just, it probably isn't reasonable at this point because we look for other infections. But I have, I've had experience where I have been certain that infection wasn't a a player, and it looked like a classic other phenomena, where six months or a year later, infection, in fact, was the player, and the immunosuppression made things worse. And 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 I and I refer you actually to a, there's a case in the New England Journal in the last year or two, where uh, a woman is immunosuppressed because of retinal lesions and and uh, visual disturbances and 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 anterior uveitis, and, and she's felt to have this, a classic, I, I don't recall exactly which disease, that, uh, maybe it's GCA, but she, no, it wasn't GCA, she had, I think it was, uh, I'm not sure which of the uh, diseases, immuno, but she was immunosuppressed only to be found two years later to have syphilis as the uh, organism that was causing all of these things. So I'm always suspicious, even if I'm not su- even if I don't know what to be suspicious of. So infection is a category that I'm, makes me uncomfortable. So at this point in her case, I, I think everyone was probably in the same ballpark as you guys were like, there's going to be a little bit of discomfort because it's such a, like cryoglobulinemia is rare. And there's also rare things that can cause that rare presentation. And there's a million tests that one could do, but at some point you just have to treat. So at this point, she actually does go on treatment with prednisone so it gets one milligram per kilogram of prednisone and essentially within about a week or two starts to feel dramatically better her renal function starts to improve and so it moves from in the uh, in the 200 somewhere it's now down around 100 her raynodes improves and and she's quite happy with the response but now the question is uh, really what to do next and is there any more hunting that we are going to do before we decide this is essential, probably mixed cryoglobulinemia. I've said my piece. So the, the treatment team decides that, that that's essentially as far as the investigations go for now. Um, and this lady will be getting rituximab or immune suppression. So that'll be given a gram two weeks apart 
and then we'll see what happens thereafter. So, and we're going to have to discuss on the side what to do about the past exposure to hepatitis B, because she is still core positive. Oh, so this is so she is being treated now. Yep. No, Barry's not happy. No, no, I'm, 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 I'm happy that she's being treated and she's improving. I'm still uncomfortable that I understand the, the disease process. I think we're going to have to, you know, the, the AIN is definitely concerning. The rest of the clinical picture is, is quite convincing in the context of the cryos. Always in the background will be ANA negative Sjogren's. That's absolutely, that's possible because you can have a row 52 that is positive and it's not always assessed on our typical uh, ENA. Actually, I don't think it is assessed on our ENA. But you can send it off, right? Yep. So that that is actually, that's cooking. I don't have that back yet. But uh, yeah, so that can be sent to the mitogen lab. And then we will have to see what happens with the MGUS if that ends up being of some significance uh, later on. But right now, she'll be treated as essential cryoglobulinemia. Which is which is obviously a really important aspect to her care, but like all of these phenomena, these phenotypes, time will tell uh, whether we're right and we don't under, under, un, uncover a, the a pathogen or the stimulation for this immune complex disease. Yeah, I guess that's where we're at. Any other thoughts before we wrap up? No, it's a cool case. Um... You know, I think a lot, a lot of the cases that we're doing here, there ends up being some element of uncertainty. Yeah. And, and that's part of what I, I like about these presentations is, is this is very realistic. Like, we're, oh, yeah. we're not going to wrap each of these cases up with a, a neat little bow. Um, and I hope people can appreciate that. Like, this is, this is a very realistic and very messy series of cases that we're dealing with. And, I, and if we're, if we seem a little lost or uncomfortable at times, I think that's, that, and then we're doing our job. Like, I am trying to be as, as transparent as I can be with the thinking that I do around these cases. And I think you are too, Barry. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, I, these are, these are amazing cases for that. I hope people are getting that out of listening to these. Don't worry. We'll do a coronary artery disease case next <laughs> yeah. time. There'll be immediate closure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Thanks. No so problem. Thanks everyone for participating. We'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.